The Roman government exiled the apostle John to the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. But he was not there alone. On the Lord's day, John was filled with the Spirit, and the glorified Christ revealed himself to John. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus commands, write therefore the things that you have seen, things that are and those that are to take place after this. In obedience, John wrote what we call the Revelation or Apocalypse. It is predominantly about the things to come in the last days. It begins with the things that are. Specifically, chapters 2 and 3 record a series of letters that Jesus sends to seven congregations in the Greco-Roman province of Asia Minor, southwest Turkey today. These seven churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The first church addressed was in Ephesus. Located on the west coast of Asia Minor, a messenger traveling from Patmos would arrive at Ephesus first. Moreover, Ephesus was the de facto capital of the province. Because of its economic strength, diverse population, cultural wealth, and religious activities. It was the vanity fair of Asia. To visit Ephesus in the first century would be like visiting Los Angeles or New York City today. And in that great city, there was a church started by Paul, led by Timothy, taught by Apollos, and served by Aquila and Priscilla. Tradition even claims that John ministered in Ephesus both before and after his exile. The church at Ephesus had an unrivaled legacy, but it did not rest on its laurels. At the time of this letter, the church at Ephesus continued to have a dynamic ministry. Yet, this seemingly thriving church was on the verge of swift and severe judgment from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice verse 4 again. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Lehman Strauss comments concerning this central verse that love is the first essential in Christian character and when it commences to decline, the soul begins to drift. In a real sense, that's what was taking place in the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had busy feet, clean hands, strong shoulders, a sound mind, and an upright heart. But its soul was adrift. It was on a collision course with spiritual disaster. Jesus here reaches out to pull this church back to safety before it was too late. Verse 7 says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter 
was written to the church, but each member was responsible for his or her response. So it was every member of the seven churches who would hear these letters. So are we. This letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. We are here tonight reading someone else's mail. <laughs> but if the shoe fits, <laughs> wear it. Does this shoe fit you tonight? Have you abandoned your first love? Do you have everything but the main thing? Hear what the Spirit says to us tonight through this love note the Lord wrote to the church at Ephesus. First, the Lord counsels the loveless church. Verse 1 is the salutation of the letter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands. Angel simply means messenger. It may refer to a human being or a supernatural being. Revelation is written in signs and symbols, so Angel may refer to the pastor teacher of the church, but we must not be dogmatic about it. I tell you, I became quite nervous the first time I heard in a public worship service someone call the pastor the angel of the house. <laughs> Pastors are not angels. <laughs> Just ask our wife and children. We are, however, messengers on assignment. Some messenger was addressed here. As the Lord writes this letter, introducing himself to the church in verse 1, he, he will do so differently and uniquely and specifically to every church. But here in verse 1, the Lord identifies himself to this church as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Consider both of those statements. First, Jesus says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Chapter 1, verse 16, John writes that in his right hand, he held seven stars. Drop down to verse 20, chapter 1. He explains, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus says he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Holds means to firmly grip, indicating the authority Jesus exercises over the church, including its leadership. The right hand is a place of strict accountability 
strong protection and strategic usefulness. This is a word of caution and comfort. Hear the word of caution. May we consider it a word of caution to both pastors and members of the church. Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. If we may, we must not be dogmatic, but if we may consider these angels the leaders or the shepherds or the pastors of these churches, consider the implication here. Members must be careful how they treat their pastors because the Lord holds the seven stars in his right hand. At the same time, pastors must be careful how we treat the members of God's flock because Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand. The word of comfort may be to these leaders. Revelation is written to and for persecuted Christians. To be a member of Christ's church was to be in harm's way, and all the more to be a pastor of Christ's church was to be in harm's way. The pastors of the seven churches put their lives in jeopardy to lead these churches. And here, what may be the Lord's comfort to them, saying, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand. But then he further says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, we are told that in the midst of the lampstands, there was one like a son of man. The picture is intensified in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, where Christ walks among the seven golden lampstands. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, these seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is walking in the midst of the seven churches. The reason may be hinted in the word golden. In scripture, it symbolizes purity. Jesus, John may be indicating here, is walking among the golden lampstands to, to examine the purity of the church. Church growth experts, quote unquote, teach that the key to growth is to ask what guests see when they visit your church. But the real key is to ask, what does the Lord see as he walks through the church? What does he see in our worship services, in our small groups, in our prayer meetings or lack thereof, in our rehearsals, our counseling sessions, our staff meetings? What does he see in offices and boardrooms and parking lots? What does he see when he follows us home? Most importantly, is the Lord pleased with what he sees? In verse 2, the Lord who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands declares two words. I know. Jesus will make this statement to each of the seven churches, and he says it to us tonight, friends. 
You can, you can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people sometime. You can't fool Jesus. <laughs> he knows us fully and perfectly and completely. After Jesus counsels the loveless church, he then commends the loveless church. The Lord, the purpose of this letter is to confront the church at Ephesus for abandoning, forsaking, intentionally, deliberately walking away from its first love. But note that Jesus begins this rebuke with compliments, not criticism. He tells them what's right before he tells them what's wrong. In fact, Jesus says more positive things about this church he rebukes than he says of the churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia that he does not rebuke. The Lord commands three aspects of the congregational life at Ephesus. First, the Lord commends their sacrificial deeds. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Works are just works, they're deeds and activities. This church was spiritually active and the Lord deemed that commendable. No church succeeds on spare time, pocket change, or nominal commitment. Healthy churches are working churches. Toil means to work to the point of exhaustion. This was not a church where members were engaged only when it was convenient. They wore themselves out for the mission and message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Patient endurance means to endure under the weight of a heavy load. There were times when it was difficult for the members of this church to follow Christ in the city of Ephesus, but they did not forsake the Lord. They carried heavy burdens for Christ without giving up. But not only does the Lord commend their sacrificial deeds, he also commends their sound doctrine. Their doctrinal fidelity is seen in a sense of holy intolerance. This church would not tolerate carnal members. He says, verse 2, I know that you cannot bear with those who are evil. Unfortunately, church discipline is the missing mark in the contemporary church. We, we don't seem to care in too many instances about how professing Christians live just as long as they attend and serve and give. Matthew 7 verse 1 is the golden verse of American Christianity, is it not? Judge not that you be not judged. And we twist this verse to mean that no one has the right to question our testimony, even though our lifestyle blatantly contradicts our profession. That was not the church at Ephesus. 
They had high moral standards. They called evil by its name. They weren't afraid to, to call something evil. They could not tolerate those who claimed to be Christians but were evil. Drop down to verse 6. There's a specific illustration of this. Jesus says to this church, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We don't know for sure about these Nicolaitans, and I will not spend time speculating. <laughs> they are only mentioned twice in Scripture. The deeds of the Nicolaitans are mentioned here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is mentioned in Revelation 2, verse 16. Jesus hated their deeds and commended the Ephesians for hating them. It doesn't say they hate the Nicolaitans, but they hated their deeds. They hated the evil ways of those who claimed to be Christians but lived sinfully. This is the mark of a true church. They can't tolerate carnal members, and they cannot tolerate counterfeit ministers. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul instructed the Ephesian elders in his farewell speech, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in from among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Apparently, Paul's ominous predictions came to pass. But false teachers were unable to harm the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. When they so-called apostles showed up, the church at Ephesus tested him. If his teaching didn't line up with the apostles' doctrine, they rejected him. This is commendable. We need to remember that the issue is not if a man can preach, but what a man preaches. Focus on the soundness of his content so you won't be seduced by the smoothness of his style. Did this church have access to written scripture? We do. We have the complete canon in multiple translations with countless tools to help us rightly divide the word of truth. The church in America so easily forsakes biblical truth for material prosperity. 
We need the moral integrity, doctrinal conviction, and spiritual courage to test what we hear and condemn those who prostitute the word of God. But also note that the Lord commends their steadfast diligence. Verse 3 says, I know you, you are enduring patiently and bear up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Heraclitus, the weeping philosopher of Ephesus, lamented the vileness of the city. Christians were persecuted and ridiculed and maligned in this city, but the church at Ephesus endured patiently. Verse 2 says they could not bear those who are evil. And using similar language, he says in verse 3, they did bear up for Christ's namesake. Friend, do you find yourself in a situation where it is hard to be devoted to Christ? Don't give up. Stay the course for his namesake. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, Jesus declares, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Next, consider how the Lord criticizes the loveless church. Indeed, there are no perfect churches. Boy, if you read these previous verses, it sure seems the church at Ephesus was close. You would think that Jesus would just give this church a five-star award and move on to the next church. But verse 4 says, I have this against you. There are three verses of commendation, and there is only one complaint. In verse 14, Jesus says to the church at Pergamon, I have a few things against you. The Lord only had one thing against Ephesus. You say, well, they're doing better. No, this one thing was so serious that he threatened to remove their lampstand from its place if they did not repent. This is the danger of having everything but the main thing. Jesus declares, you have abandoned the love you had at first. This complaint may point upward, inward, or outward. It may be love for Christ, love for one another, or love for the lost, but the tone and content point to love for Christ. To love the Lord is the main thing. And this church had everything but the main thing. They had not, as an older translation reads, they had not lost their first love. They left it. 
They forsook it. They abandoned their first love. It was not accidental or incidental. It was a willful act. It was intentional rebellion. It was deliberate betrayal. Didn't take place all at once, little by little. The church drifted away until it had abandoned its first love. The love you had at first. What is first love? We don't need exegesis here. If you've ever been in love, you know what first love is. It's honeymoon love. You have strong feelings. You cannot stop thinking about that person. You always want to be together. You talk all the time. You do everything together. You do whatever it takes to make your lover smile. You're on a high from which you will never come down. I remember when Crystal and I first got married 21 years ago. And in those early days, we just, one day we just said to each other, I can't believe other Couples would ever fight. That'll never happen to us. <laughs> but if you're not careful, in marriage, romance becomes routine. Life happens. The fire that consumes the relationship becomes a chill that freezes the relationship. In some real sense, this is what happened in the heart of this church toward Christ. I won't linger here, but Jesus speaks of this in terms of betrayal. It's, it's as if a husband would say to his wife, I, I don't love you anymore, but don't worry. Things are not going to change. I'm, I'm not moving out. I'll still be here. I'll still work. I'll still father the children. I'll still provide. I just don't love you anymore. To abandon your first love is to say, Lord, I don't, I don't love you like I once did. I'll, I come to church, though. I sing, I pray, I give, just I don't love you. This is in some greater, deeper, higher way. This is what was going on in the hearts of the members of the church at Ephesus. They forsook their devotion to Christ. And all they had left was dead orthodoxy, headless morality, and empty religion. And it can happen to you. Has it happened to you? Is the fire of devotion to Christ still burning? Have you abandoned your first love? In 
her devotionals, Glorious Intruder, Johnny Erickson Tata writes about what she calls the mythical standstill Christian. She lists them among other fictional creatures. She says it just doesn't exist. In the Christian life, she argues, either you are going forward or you are going backward. She says if Christianity is a, is a vehicle, there, there are only two gears, drive and reverse. No neutral, definitely no park. You are not standing still. You are either drawing closer to the Lord or you are drifting away from him. This is a letter in which the Lord warns a church that has drifted away. Notice, fourthly, that the Lord corrects this loveless church. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That verse 4 is not the end of the letter. Right? By amazing grace, there is still hope for those who have abandoned their first love. Verse 5 gives three ways to restore, to restoration. First, the Lord says, remember. It's verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The church at Ephesus had fallen from the height of devotion to Christ and needed to be restored. The first step, Jesus says, was for them simply to remember from where they had fallen. And there are times when looking back is dangerous. In Luke 17, verse 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife to warn us of the peril of being tied to the past when the Lord has called us to go forward. But there are times when forgetting the past can be dangerous. Some things you ought to remember. You ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. You ought to remember what it was like when grace gripped you. No, I'm not suggesting that you need to remember the moment you were saved. But if you've been saved, you ought to remember the aftermath of grace that saved you by the blood of Christ. Steve Lawson said it well, memory is the handmaid of revival. Jesus commanded this fallen church to remember, and it's in a grammatical emphasis that denotes continual action. Keep on remembering. It is a perpetual recollection. Do not forget what the Lord, by his sovereign grace, has done for you in Christ. Then the Lord says, repent. A religious expert asks Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And in Matthew 22, verse 37, Jesus 
answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's just the great and first commandment. Love for God is our greatest spiritual duty. Love for Christ is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To know the Lord is to love the Lord. And to allow love for Christ to grow cold is sin. This church that could not stand evil was in sin. Jesus commanded them to remember and then to repent. To change their minds. And thus change their attitudes and their behavior. Practically to repent is to make a U-turn in your life. It is to acknowledge your way is wrong and God's way is right. So you stop going your way and start going God's way. To repent is to come back to God. This is what Jesus commands. But the beauty of this, we, we hear this word, and it's, it's a terrorizing word if you think of it the wrong way. But, but the commandment of God is the enablement of God. The call to repent says you can come back. If you come to Jacksonville, I've been there 11 years. If you come to Jacksonville, I could tell you how to get to my church and how to get to my house. That's it. <laughs> Last uh, summer, I was preaching a conference at one of the large, well-known and respected churches in our city. And um, it's just on a part of town I had never been to. Uh, I hadn't been in that specific area. And um, I spent the day in the office and then headed over that night. It's about 15 or so minutes from our church, which is downtown. And I must have been, well, the sun had not gone down yet, and I, I must have been thinking about my message, and I, I just typed in the address, and Siri gave me directions, and I, I literally just, I wasn't paying attention. Until the service was over, and I walked to my car and pulled into this, it just, it just everything just seemed dark. I didn't know where I was. And I had to go another route to 295, the other direction, to get home from that church. I typed in home. Siri told me to turn right out of the parking lot. I did. She told me to go approximately two miles and then get on to the 295. But it was dark, I didn't know where I was. And I drove right past the on-ramp. Siri started talking again. <laughs> but I am glad she did not say, you idiot. <laughs> I, I told you to turn right here and you, you missed it. Just, just 
figure it out yourself. <laughs> right? He said in 180 feet, make a U-turn. <laughs> and guess what? She took me back to the spot where I had gotten it wrong. And I had another chance to get it right. God's grace is much greater than that. We've not just missed the turn. We have, says Isaiah, right? We have turned to our own way intentionally and rebelliously. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. And he's saying, run to the cross. Where you can find free forgiveness, new life, and eternal hope. Repeat. Verse 5 says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. The call to do the first work teaches us that love is more than emotion. Love is what you do. First John 3 and 8 says, little children, let us love in let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus says, repent and do the work you did at first. This is the, if you keep a score, the second first in the text. There is the first love in verse 4. Now there are first works. What are these first works, the works you did at first? Jesus does not specify but the first works are whatever you did when you loved Christ at first. Go back to the basics. Pray and read your Bible and worship and fellowship. Do the first works. In, in a real sense, we are reminded here that it is easier to act your way into a feeling than to feel your way into an action. To do the works you did at first is just a call to do whatever it takes to get closer to God. The church at Ephesus was free to ignore these instructions. But willful disobedience would result in dire consequences. Jesus warns the church, repent or else. Verse 6, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is not the... Second coming, this is a special coming, a specific coming to the church at Ephesus. If the church did not heed the Lord's final call, Jesus threatened to remove his candlestick out of his place. What does this mean? There are two possibilities. It could mean the church would cease to exist. That actually happened. Every saved person 
has eternal security. Local churches do not. Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The universal church is eternally secure, but the Lord's continued favor on a local church is never guaranteed, and thus it must never be presumed. Or this could mean that Christ would not be obviously present. In this church, this, this is worse than extinction. Sometimes Jesus lets a church keep doing what it's doing and snuffs its light out. So he's still doing his thing, but he's not there. Verse 7 records an exhortation and a promise. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <laughs> in each of the letters to the seven churches, the Lord issues this call to hear. And then he gives a promise to those who heed his call. He calls them the one who conquers or prevails or is victorious or overcomes. Kevin already made it clear that this is about victory. But let me notice particular nuance. It is to prevail after a struggle. <coughs> conquerors are not a special or select group. All Christians are conquerors. 1 John 5, verses 14 to 15 says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In each letter, the conqueror receives a different reward. In verse 7, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life was in the garden of Eden, and Genesis chapter 3, verse 22 and 23 says the Lord banished Adam from the garden, lest he eat from the tree of life and so live forever in his fallen condition. But the second Adam will grant the one who conquers to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. As Jesus died on the cross, a guilty criminal hanging beside him cried out, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus said in Luke 23, verse 40, Three, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And all who trust the blood and righteousness of Christ will live with God forever. John 10, 28 through 30, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Neither will anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Glory to God. Father, thank you for your word, its truth, its wisdom, and authority. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who reigns in majesty and sovereignty, yes, over the world, but also as the head and the ruler of his church. 
cause us to acknowledge. As we study these letters this week, Lord, that you know us. May we abandon pretense. May we forsake hypocrisy. May we take off masks. And as we look in the mirror of your word, may we see ourselves as we truly are. And confront us, Lord. Rebuke us. For where we have abandoned our, our love for you in any way, and in every, any sphere of our life, or in any aspect of the life of the church. Bring us to repentance. Repentance with assurance of the total sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood and righteousness opens for us a new and living way to you. Thank you that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that even tonight in our remaining time together. As we behold the glory of the Lord, may we be transformed from one state of glory to the next as your spirit works in us. In Jesus' name, amen.